Good morning. Hey, thank you. Uh, my name is Greg Ogden. I'm one of the covenant partners here at uh, CPC. Pastor Rick called and asked if I would step in this Sunday because uh, he's away with Janice uh, celebrating the wedding of their daughter this weekend. So having a wonderful time, I'm sure, doing that. Let me just uh, offer a couple of autobiographical notes as I get started so you have a little bit of sense of who this person is standing in front of you uh, this morning. Uh, my wife and I moved here to Monterey area um, in uh, March of 2012. I retired as a pastor uh, from that, or as I like to say, I no longer get paid to be a Christian. Um, so uh, we redeployed here from Chicago. Haven't noticed a whole lot of difference um, in the weather. So we're delighted to, to be here during these uh, retirement years for the last five years. It's been fun to get involved in various types of ministry. The particular focus of, of the ministry I've been involved with is intentional discipleship, helping people grow in their faith, but using a particular tool, I call it a micro group, a group of three or four people getting together in a covenantal relationship, moving on towards relationship with Christ. Um, and we, because of that, we formed a, a ministry for the last year and a half uh, called Global Discipleship Initiative. Uh, I have some partners in that ministry. Our, our goal is to train, inspire, and equip uh, Christian leaders uh, from around the world uh, to create disciple-making movements, so nationally and internationally. Our, our flagship for this ministry is Nepal, of all places, and so we have a wonderful team there in place in Nepal, six regions that are developing this discipleship ministry, and as the year goes on, we're going to be in Romania and China over the next uh, few months. So um, we want to be, so we'd love to have you, you know, check out our website. It's called globaldi.org goes live tomorrow and um, did you get that globaldi.org you want to write this down globaldi.org uh, okay enough of the commercial um, so that actually kind of leads me into the focus uh, for today uh, my ministry has been built around a, a very familiar text uh, to us all uh, it's Matthew 28 18 through 20 if you want to turn to this, the scriptures you can open that up uh, we know this text is the Great Commission uh, and let me just uh, read it out of my own mind here as we uh, do this, uh, this text. Jesus came and said to them, he pulled his disciples together, he's in, uh, on the mount in Galilee, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Most people looked at this text as the marching orders, the commands, the imperatives for what the church is to be all about. As one central command, make disciples. And then there are three descriptive words uh, that describe what a disciple is. This is kind of Jesus' thumbnail, shorthand description of what a disciple is all about. And the, the shorthand comes in the form of three participles. Okay, we got a high school students here. What's a participle? What's that? <laughs> How's the English class going these days? All right. Uh, so participles are verbal adjectives. You can recognize a participle because it's an action word uh, that has an ing ending connected to it. So you'll see on the screen here, verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 28, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. 
So going, baptizing, and teaching are the three descriptive words for make disciples. So a disciple embodies these, these three things. It's the second characteristic I want to focus in on in this message. What does it mean to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And I don't think we quite get to the depth of what it's all about. When we think of baptism, I think we think of basically four things, four meanings or significances when it comes to, to baptism. First one is that when you're baptized, you're doing this publicly. It's a public declaration of faith. You're standing up in front of people and you're saying, I want you to know <laughs> that I'm committing my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So public declaration. The second meaning of baptism usually is the that we are included into the people of God, into the church. Uh, we don't do private baptisms because it's a public event into the body of Christ. Third meaning of baptism is that we are being cleansed from the guilt of our sins. Uh, we have a clean slate, a new start because of the washing away of the guilt of our sin. And then the fourth meaning of baptism usually is our identification with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you look at Romans chapter 6, uh, you'll see that the Apostle Paul says that uh, we die with Christ and we rise with him. And he uses baptism as the symbol of dying and rising with Jesus. Now, that's a lot. That means uh, a lot. But I think there's even more going on here, and this is what I want to try to get at um, this morning. What eluded me about the depth of meaning here is I think we put a lot of emphasis on the word baptizing and very little emphasis on what follows baptizing into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I struggled with this. Why is baptism so central to discipleship? Or as one person said, what's getting wet have to do uh, with discipleship? Yeah, I baptized a lot of people. Um, so I think that baptism is kind of a, a formula. You know, you put your hand on the head of somebody, you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as if it's kind of a line out of a worship book. But what I have come to realize is that baptism is the means in which we enter into the dance of the three-person God, who is community. It's the means of entering into the dance of the three-person God, who is community. In the seventh century, there was a theologian by the name of John of Damascus. And he used a Greek word to describe the nature of the Trinity. And it's the word parakoresis. Uh, it's made up of two parts. The last part is chorus, from which we get the word dance. And it means a circle dance. You add the word peri in front of it, it just accentuates the circularity of, of the dance. If you've ever seen the Jewish community celebrate, you've seen circle dances. Uh, my wife and I had a chance to be a part of the Messianic Jewish community. Jewish believers in Jesus in Southern California. At the end of all their services, they got up and formed a big circle, interlocked arms, and they, they danced very rhythmically at the end. So that's the kind of image that I think is, is going on here uh, in our text. And so John uses this image to picture the nature of life within eternity. That God, who is three persons, is in a dance of intimacy, equality, and unity, always deferring in love and honor to one another. To continue on with this image of dance, what happened in the Garden of Eden? We stepped out of the dance. We said, I'm gonna, we're going to do our own dance. <laughs> we're going to go our own direction. We're not going to do it in concert with who God is. And from the moment that happened, God set about to pursue us, to bring us back into the dance, to include us. 
And I think what Jesus is saying here with this phrase, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that work has been completed. You have been restored to what you have originally lost when we stepped out of, of the dance. So let me see if I can uh, rework the phrasing here. If I substitute the word immersing for baptizing, maybe it would catch a little different flavor. As you're going, make disciples of all nations, immersing them into the life of the eternal three-person community of love who exists at the center of the universe. Let me say that again. As you are going, make disciples of all nations, immersing them into the life of the eternal three-person community of love who exists at the center of the universe. Now, to understand this three-person God, <laughs> this one God who is three persons, uh, the holy three, we might say, we need to go back to the beginning. And so, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Think you can find that? Genesis chapter 1, because this chapter answers a very basic question. Why did God create us in the first place? What was his intention with creating human beings? And Genesis 1 through 27, 1, 1 through 27, really has a very poetic structure to it. It's a very rhythmic structure that's built into the six days of creation uh, leading up to, of course, the Sabbath, Sabbath day. And so verses 1 through 25 have a pattern to them. And we, it starts with, of course, that very familiar phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then for each one of the six days... God declares and brings into being through word of mouth the elements of his creation. So there's a pattern. God said, let there be light, and there what was light. Let there be expanse to separate the waters. Let there be dry land and vegetation. Let there be lights in the sky. Let there be waters teeming with life. And let there be creatures on the ground. So with each one of these creative acts, it was followed by the same phrase. And it was so. Let there be and it was so. And then there was another phrase that's repeated. And God saw that it was good. I, I love that phrase. I think God's stepping back and saying, man, I'm doing a pretty good job here, aren't I? <laughs> this is really coming out the way I want it uh, to come out. And then finally, the close of the day, there was evening and there was morning. So for the six days of creation, there's this pattern that's repeated, the very a poetic structure. But at the latter half of the sixth day, when human beings come on the scene, the formula changes. Because everything is moving in the direction of creation of human life as the highest point of God's creative work. And so it moves from let there be and there was, which is impersonal, to a personal statement. Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Verse 26. The crown jewel of creation is us. We're all heading in our direction. It's kind of like if you put this text to music, when you get to this point, the drums start to play, the fireworks go off. <laughs> this is where it's all moving toward. So the big speculation throughout the centuries has been, what does it mean for human beings to be created in the image of God? What is it about human beings that we reflect about God. And you can see that there is and lots of different speculation of what that is. There you go. Okay. 
So lots of different options that have been proposed over time, and this is just a sample of some of those options. So what's the image of God in human beings? Well, rationality. You know, we can think more complex thoughts than the rest of creation. Or morality. There is a sense of consciousness of right or wrong uh, in human life. Freedom of choice. We can choose between alternatives. Uh, some have said, well, no, it's, it's self-consciousness. Only humans can contemplate the meaning of their own existence. I don't think Fido was sitting around wondering why he was created, right? Only human beings can do that. And then creativity and imagination. We have the ability to bring ideas as images into reality. We have creative work that can be done. Now, all of those things, I think, are true. And they, but they, I think they point to something beyond these that are an accumulation of things. And at the core of what it means to be created in the image of God, we have a clue in the text that I just read. And so the question is, why does God describe himself in the plural in this text? Why does the one God say, let us make man in our image after our likeness? Why does God talk about himself in kind of these multiple terms? Well, I think the clue to that, fast forward to the New Testament. On this side of the incarnation of Jesus as the Son of God and the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have come to understand that we have one God who is three persons. And probably what this early allusion to, even at the very beginning, is this allusion to the fact that God is a being in fellowship and relationship from all of eternity. Existing at the center of the universe is a God who is community. In loving relationship among himself that is the core of our life together. In other words, God's image in us is a relational image. God is about relationship because God fundamentally is a relational being. This is where Michael Lloyd puts it. He's principal at um, Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. He says, it is relationships that matter most to us because we were made not only for relationship, but by relationship. We were made in the image of God, and God is relationship. That's what is at the center. Now, let's think about it this way. We affirm with the Apostle John that the core characteristic of God is love. But if God were a single being, singular, solo, isolated, before he created anything, then who did God love? How could God be a God of love if he was solitary by himself? This is the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Love is something one person has for another. If God were a single person, then before the world was made, he was not loved. Who did God love if he were a single person? But he's not. <laughs> he's three persons. There was a community of love that existed at the center of the universe. So if God were a solitary being before he created us, then he was going to fulfill some deficit within himself. Was God lonely and needed companionship? Is that why he created us? No. He existed in the fullness of himself. There was a self-sufficiency in God. Paul says in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, as he's speaking to the Athenians, the God who made the world and everything in it is the God of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. 
Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You see, God did not create us to fill a hole in his heart. He created us out of the fullness of love so that we can be included in his life. Or as Meister Eckert, the mystic, said, God created out of the laughter of the Trinity. Isn't that beautiful? The laughter of the Trinity. Well, let me tell a little bit of a homespun story here to try to bring it down to some concrete nature. Um, my wife and I were married in 1969. Want to do the math? Huh? 48, yeah. Next month. And uh, what was going on in 1969 in this culture? We were grad- just graduating from college. This was a time of turmoil in our society, anti-war you know, movements in, with Vietnam, the whole uh, area of racial equality and, and movement was going on. But there was also the flower child movement at that time. And the big theme was freedom. You don't want to get tied down. And there was kind of an anti-child pol- attitude in those days. You know, why would you want to have a child? They just kind of tie you down. And so we kind of adopted that kind of mentality, being very much influenced by the times. So for the first five years of our married life, we held to our no-child policy. And we didn't want to articulate to each other that maybe our minds were changing about having children because it was one of those marriage issues that if I'm having a different attitude about it, but what if she doesn't, and then mm, where's that going to lead us? But we then suspected that my wife was pregnant. All the usual signs were there. And there was no, you know, kit in the local pharmacy that you could go to check pregnancies back in those days, so you had to go off to a doctor. And so my wife went off to a doctor, and uh, a couple days later, we got the call. Negative. No, you're not pregnant. And it was only then that we finally admitted to each other how disappointed we were with that news that we had already began to form a love for this child of promise, even though we, you know, didn't know what this child was going to be. And finally, we, we got to the point of finally admitting to each other our disappointment. And what surprised us was that even the thought of having a child made us long for this child of promise. You see, we wanted a product of our together love on whom to bestow love. That's such a natural thing. No, I'm happy to tell you that the doctor was wrong. We have a very grown daughter (laughs) and two grandchildren to prove it. um, Wrong. But I think this is an analogy. You know, God has given us a human analogy to understand the motivation of God within within us. Out of the fullness of of his love, he created us to have a love relationship with him. He wanted us to be included in the fullness of love within the Trinity. But where do we get a glimpse of life within the Trinity? Do we have a little bit of window of knowledge as to what's going on with the father-son relationship in particular? And in fact, we do. Jesus gives us some windows into this understanding of what the relationship was like so that we can understand what it means to be included in that relationship with with the father and the son. Jesus spoke about the Father a lot. And it may come as a surprise to you when it comes to the image of God in the Old Testament. The image of Father is only used 15 times. Never in terms of praying to God as Father. Never. 
When it comes to the New Testament, the image of God as Father is used 179 times. So 100 of those are in the Gospel of John, most of which are on the lips of Jesus as he addresses his Father. And how does he teach us to pray? Our Father. Thank you very much. So let me see if I can open some windows here and uh, bring us into what's going on in this relationship if I can. Solve a little bit of the mystery of what's happening here. First uh, window I want to open is Jesus presenting himself to John the Baptist for baptism at the beginning of his ministry. And uh, one commentator said, it's kind of like a family reunion happening here. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit show up together <laughs> and uh, as Jesus is being launched into his ministry. So Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, and what happens? A dove descends, representing the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. It's his inauguration, in a sense, ordination service into ministry because this happens right at the beginning of his ministry. And then there is a message from the Father to the Son. And I want to look at it in a couple of different nuances here. Mark's account is a little different than Matthew's account. Mark's account, it says a very personal word. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Personal address. I'm speaking to you, son. I'm looking you in the eye. The visual I have in my mind is the, the father taking the shoulders of the son, looking deep in his eyes and saying, I, I want you to know above all else how proud I am of you. The place that you have in my heart. As I send you off into this ministry, keep that relationship in mind. That's who you are. Matthew's account shifts it somewhat. It doesn't say, you are my son. It says, what? This is my son. With him, I am well pleased. And I think the nuance of difference here is that the father is not speaking directly to Jesus. He's speaking to the crowds that have gathered there. And it's as if there's this proud papa. They just cannot contain himself. I want you to know, crowds, <laughs> who this son is to me. This is my son, whom I love. Without you, I'm well pleased. Do I see some parents out here? Ever been proud of your kids? Ever had something happen? Uh, if you have parents that are proud of you, you know. And uh, things that you do make them very proud. And maybe you've got that winning shot at a basketball game or some kind of award. And your parents are there and you're receiving this award. And what they want to do is stand up and say, you know who that is? That's my kid right there. I had one of those moments my wife and I did when our daughter graduated from medical school. Memorial Day weekend, 2002, Providence, Rhode Island, Brown University. And we arrived that day. We're sitting in the gathering there where our daughter's going to be presented with her medical hood. And uh, we opened the bulletin. And our daughter hasn't told us this. She is the outstanding female graduate in her class, it says. Keeping this from her. <laughs> and I, but I told her ahead of time, you know, when the time comes when they announce your name and the hood is put on your neck, I'm going to stand up and make a fool of myself and you um, by shouting as loud as I possibly can, way to go, Amy, which I did. I paid a lot of money for that moment. And 
eyes are very reflected of all the things that the father could have said to the son. Why those words? I mean, I can think of other things that might have been said. You know, a little coaching talk. Go get them, kids. Show them your stuff. Yeah. Word of caution. Don't let those so-and-sos get you down. Perseverance. You know, hang in there to the end. Reminder of his mission. You know, show them how much we love them, son. I'm with you all the way. Why those words? Because even Jesus needed to know the place that he met in his father's heart because he was the apple of his eye because the father knew what was ahead for the son. Again, let me kind of draw a parallel here. Again, to parents. We have those moments when we're sending our kids off into the world for the first time. It could be preschool. It could be kindergarten. <laughs> and what happens? All of our protectiveness comes into play. We want to protect our kids from the pains that are out there in this world. And my wife and I had one of those moments when we sent our kid off to a college a ways away. And uh, I can remember as if it was yesterday, walking out of her dorm room, leaving the campus and leaving her there. We uh, went from San Francisco Bay Area, 16 hours to a college in north southeastern state of Washington, filled our car up with God knows who what, you know, in terms of the stuff she thought we needed to take, hauled all that stuff up the stairs to her new college dorm room, all the while checking out her new roommate, checking out those that are coming and end up being across the hall from her, you know, with all these protective feelings of, well, she'll be able to find a Christian fellowship to be a part of. What about all the drinking that's going to go on campus? Will she be able to handle all that? All those things that come through our minds. And then we had that moment of departure. Of course, her parents are a mess. You know, we're blubbering. And uh, she's giving us a quick hug. Get out of here. Get out of here as fast as you possibly can. And, uh, and as we left and heading towards our car, I know my feelings were to want to turn back to the campus and say, I'm leaving you my precious child, the greatest treasure of my life. Treat her well. Did the father have any of those feelings towards his son? Knowing what was ahead for him? I think he probably did. Second window, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is just now hours before the cross. He's anticipating the separation that the cross is going to mean for him, that he's going to bear all the sins of humanity on that cross. He enters the garden with a sense of angst. Luke tells us that uh, he's sweating so badly that he sweats drops of blood. He sends Peter, James, and John off to a portion, a, a place a little bit further away, and then falls down his father. And then he uses a very tender word, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Abba is an Aramaic word, child of Jews for his own father, daddy, papa. Jesus reverts to kind of a childhood expression here, entrusting himself to his father, again, knowing what lies ahead. It's been broadly recognized that nobody dare address 
God in these personal terms. God was always this other out there. Nobody ever would talk about God in this intimate kind of language. But there's only one son of God. Who can do that? And he calls him Abba. Father, I entrust myself to you now, knowing what lies ahead. And I think he hears again, you are my son. go to John chapter 17. We call this Jesus' final prayer with his disciples. He tells us that he's completed the work that God has given him to do. It means he's preserved the 11 disciples now because Judas has now absented himself. And we come to this moment that is truly amazing in this prayer. Sometimes when I'm reading texts of scripture, I feel like I'm eavesdropping on a moment that I should not be able to be a part of. It's so personal. But apparently Jesus wanted to have this window into his heart. John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Did you catch that? Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What is Jesus conscious of here? He's conscious of his eternal relationship with the Father that existed face to face with intimacy and openness. But now for a time, it's been interrupted because he's now taken on human form. And now he wants to get back to that place that he once held in that face to face relationship with his Father. The only word that I can use to describe what's going on with Jesus that he's homesick. Ever been homesick? (laughs) Back with a familiar? Can't wait to get back to what he once had. And Jesus is saying to the Father, bring me home. I'm ready to come home, Abba. I miss you. And then Jesus turns his focus from his own yearnings and begins to pray for his disciples and the ones that will come after him. In verses 20 and 21 of John 17, we read, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us. Did you catch that again? I am in you, you are in me, they may be in us. It's as if the circle of the Trinity is now opening up and we welcoming you into our life together. That's what you get to enjoy. The love that we share with each other, I'm including all of you in that love. That's why I created you to begin with, so that you could be included in that love. And Jesus completes this in verse 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them doesn't get much better than that. Again, I'm always trying to kind of bring things down to a kind of concrete image. So let me see if this works. I think we're being invited to join the family table. And imagine, and some of you may not have to imagine too hard, 
the, the home that you were brought up in is kind of chaotic. Family table, what's that? <laughs> Eating a meal together? That never happens. It, it's kind of everyone for themselves. You know, there's a refrigerator. Take care of yourself. We're off doing other things. So a family togetherness experience is something you've never experienced before in your life. But you think, well, this is normal. This is the way my family is. Maybe every family is like this as well. But as fortune would have it, you become good friends with somebody that actually talks respectfully about their parents and seems to enjoy their relationships with their brother and sisters. You thought, well, this is kind of new. Um, and then you get invited over for dinner one night to join this family. And as you sit down for dinner, there's a beaming father at the head of the table saying, I'm just so delighted to have you here. Wow, that's new. Um, this, the whole experience is feeling different. It's a home-cooked meal tonight. Family members are bringing that home-cooked meal to the table. Uh, we begin to have conversations, so there, everybody's checking in on what their day was like. Well, what, what was your day like? And, and they're drawing each other out and needling each other a bit. There's a lot of laughter going on around the table. And you're sitting there thinking, how do I get adopted into this family? <laughs> As they're clearing off the table, the mother says to you, you know, uh, you're welcome here anytime. Consider yourself a part of the family. God's saying that to you. Welcome to the family. Consider yourself a part of the family. How do I get adopted into this family? Well, God has made that possible. The truth of the Trinitarian embrace is that we are adopted into the family of God and obtain a similar position before the Father that Jesus had. He says to each one of us, you are my child, marked and chosen by my love, the delight of my life. Put your name in there. Greg, you are my child, marked and chosen by my love, the pride of my life. That's the foundation of the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul brings it together in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. He says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption as to sonship. And by we, him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We get to cry, Abba, Father, as well. Because the spirit says we have been claimed by him. This might be a, a good summary quote. Anthony DeMello, a devotional writer, says, Behold the one beholding you that's life behold the one beholding you that's life to know that we are the delight of the father's heart and that we are taken into the circle dance of trinitarian love that will one day flow through us unimpeded is what it means to be baptized into the name of the father and of the son We know that contemplating this truth, it really doesn't get any better. That you have welcomed us, you smile upon us, you say you're so proud to be our Father. I know sometimes that other messages intrude very easily into our minds that are contrary, that we can't even accept this reality about ourselves because we think we know ourselves so well. How could God possibly love us this much? 
we dare to believe this reality that you are smiling upon us and take great delight in us because of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.